X-Ray. And welcome to the Beer Vada Podcast, the first Beer Vada Podcast of the tour of the twenties. It that's right, the twenties. Well, uh, I guess it's sort of. I mean, it depends how quickly we can get the, <laughs> the last one we recorded out. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah, it that's might not true. be the first one that appears in the twenties, but it's the first one that we're actually recording mentally in the twenties. That's right. And so, happy new decade. Will Will this be the decade where we actually start saying twenties? Again, because it's been since the nineties that we just said the second half. Are we going to, people want to call it the twenties now? And we finally have a good moniker, right? Like yeah. the, the naughties weren't very, no. No, and no the, one really called it. And the teens didn't work because you've got the, like the first few are, are not actually teens. teens. I know. Yeah. So, so finally we have something we can say. The twenties. We're in the twenties. Yeah. All right. The twenties will be a good decade. Maybe. Probably well, not maybe, for me. My maybe. body's just going to fall apart. Well. It's going to be a slow, slow yeah, decline. The, the earth could burn and, um, you know, yeah, who knows. Yeah, I wasn't really talking about like that stuff. No, that sucks. We sorry. don't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's the Beer Bottom Podcast. Here we are. <laughs> Off topic immediately, as always. Yes. Uh, here in the studios of X-Ray FM at the Falcon Art Building in North Portland. You're just looking at me. Yeah, well, I was, you're in the middle of it. Keep going, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are recording this actually uh, uh, on the last day of the, of the teens, but that's right. Um, uh, so it gives us a chance to, to look ahead, thinking about what a podcast should sound like in the, in the new decade should sound a whole lot different than the podcast of the, the teens. Hey, we talked about podcast. We talked about the, 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 what happened in the last decade in our last podcast. And we didn't talk about podcasts, which were a thing that happened in the last decade. Wow. You're right. How meta we didn't know, think about right? that. I know. Even as it was coming out of my mouth, I thought, Whoa, this is profound. Yeah. But probably within another year, podcasts will be dead. I know. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. So they're probably just a thing of the teens. I got, I got right on the blog thing and then it's super passe and I got right on the Facebook thing and it's super passe. Yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Instagram is, is becoming passe. So. Yeah. But right now, hopefully you're on it like a lot cause that's what, that's where the kids are. Yeah. I know I'm still on Twitter cause I'm an old man. Oh. I know. And it was never a thing, which is so Jeff. <laughs> Twitter? Yeah. Twitter was kind of a thing. Yeah, kind of a thing. But anyway. All right, car carry on. <laughs> carry let's, on. Get, let's get this done. Wait a minute. <laughs> I should introduce you. Yeah. Uh, you're Jeff Allworth. Right? I see how this podcast is going to be. Uh, oh my gosh, we're off to a terrible start. <laughs> With me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way. <laughs> <laughs> and coming soon, the Beer Bible, Part Two. You don't ever like when I say Part Two. Uh, Volume Two, I, I, <laughs> Second I, Edition. I was holding it together until you said the Widmer Way. The way you said the Widmer Way really uh, cracked me up. Uh, and with me is Patrick Emerson, uh, professor of economics at Oregon State University. And across from us is producer Chase. Hi, Chase. <laughs> <laughs> You're really good at that. Today on Top 40 Radio, we're going to have plenty of... Oh my gosh, I'm not going to date myself. I have no idea what's on Top 40 Radio. Yeah, uh, I think even saying... Little Nas X and Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was the and that did you in. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, terrible. Even my kids aren't keeping me up anymore. I know, I know, it's... But you know, who cares at this point, 
it's not like we're going to get any cred back. So we might as well just let it all hang out. Let it go. It's the twenties. You know, you know, the cool thing about the twenties is they're going to, people are going to treat their elders differently. Yeah. Like we're, they're going to be, People are going to be nice to us and it'll be great. That's right. <laughs> like it is now. <laughs> that snort I just heard from the teen to my right is not hopeful. <laughs> All right. Before we get started, we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers, of course, for sponsoring this episode of the Beervana Podcast. You can find Freem Family Brewers in Hood River, Oregon and at freembeer.com, P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-R.com. And you can find their beer wherever beer is sold in the world. Probably not in the world, but yeah. <clears throat> in our part of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to find an exit. I had no exit. Oh, I know you, you're terrible. I, I can see the look on your face. You just want to keep going back to that voice, which um, is pretty spectacular, but let's not do it. Okay. <laughs> in a world where Jeff doesn't want me to talk in my radio announcer voice. A new so, hero emerges. It's it, it it it's it's more like it's less like the announcer guy and more like Paul Rudd does the announcer guy. <laughs> that's that's what it's like. Uh, okay, so today uh, we're going to look. Uh, we're going to look at a topic. Okay, sure. <laughs> Reading your words, Jeff. Today we're going to look at a topic of perennial interest: good beer cities. That is interesting. For at least three decades, American municipalities have been heavily invested in touting themselves as a great beer destinations. Uh, over time, the competition for bragging rights has only grown as more and more places develop in an interest in beer. The problem, though, is that no one can agree on the definitions. Are brewery counts a good metric? Does barley need to grow nearby? What about the availability of imports? Well, we're going to sort all this out and give you the gold standard of measurement. <laughs> Oh yes, Good. <laughs> thank you for setting the bar so low. Uh, hey, you know you you gotta. It's it, one thing you didn't it's, mention it's is the podcast equivalent of a clickbait. You just gotta. Well, that's that's the point. One thing you didn't mention is this is largely an invention of social media, where lists are everything you do and all you do. I don't think that's true. I, I remember these things before social media was a big deal. <gasps> You're that old. Wow. I am that old. <laughs> Indeed, yes, I am. Uh, hey, by the way. Uh, I know I'm supposed to cut to the news, but I, I, I just remembered something, which was I was driving here to beautiful North Portland uh, on the beautiful Interstate 5, mm -hmm. as you do mm -hmm. if you're coming from South Portland, mm -hmm. and there's no traffic, those rare times. Uh, and I was driving by, and from the Interstate 5, you can see uh, John Harris's Ecliptic Brewing, yeah, which was uh, kind of a brilliant locational choice because he is being surrounded by brand new massive apartment buildings like all three sides i know i know and they're really tall they're like seven stories or something so we're talking about like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new residents yeah within uh about 50 yards of his <laughs> front step and i'm just thinking kaching like way to go john harris yeah and that was a bit of a peripheral location when he got it it and, was and the world came to him it so was. perseverance paid off Good i know job, that john. he looked for a long time yeah and he found what you find which is these industrial old industrial buildings like a big box that you can fit out and it looked his looked to downtown but in between that beautiful vista of downtown and his uh, back porch was this like aforementioned i5 well there's that there's also there's also that like rail yard thing oh yeah yeah, yeah. you know it was like guys welding and stuff uh and i think that, it's like a maintenance yard for 
for the electric company or for the city or something. Yeah, yeah something like that. There's so a lot going on there. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't exactly what you would describe as picturesque. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it worked out great for him. Way to go, John. So, uh, location, location, location. He yeah. already did well anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think he had built up his business. Even had that not happened, he would have been fine. But that's just a bonus. Yeah. The same thing is happening out of Zeugel House. In exactly. Lentz. I was about to say. Yeah. Uh, and that was a little more because Zeugel House was put there thanks in part to the Portland Development Commission uh, grants or funds or loans that are trying to spur development in, in, in blighted areas of the city. And in Lentz, that was certainly true. And they've. Yeah. They've done a huge transformation job in, in Lentz. Yeah. Uh, and so they kind of anticipated it, but still, seeing the result now, uh, I wonder what occupancy rates are like, but they must be doing pretty well. I think they're probably doing well. Uh, in both cases, my guess is um, they are, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe John's is better, uh, uh, you know, uh, like more expensive. But um, out in Lentz, it's got to be fairly ex- in- inexpensive housing, which we need a lot of in the city, and there's not very much of it, so... Yeah, and right on the light rail line, so uh, easy access to right. other parts of the city. So yeah, all right. Well, I suppose we should we should turn to the news. All right. Uh, since the news gets very slow around the holidays, we thought we'd broaden our scope and have a look at two wine stories that may be of interest to beer folk. Uh, Many European wines currently have a 25% tariff placed on them, and President Trump has threatened raising that to 100%. This has the wine world in a frenzy, uh, and an editorial last week in The Wine Spectator slams the proposed tariffs. But here's my question to you, Mr. Emerson, the professor. Okay. Uh, Would this actually be bad for the American wine industry? What would happen if Mexican beer suddenly got slapped with a 100% tariff? It's Uh, an interesting, it's one of those winners and losers things, right? It is an interesting question. So to the extent to which American wines sell largely in the U.S., and I imagine that's true, but I don't know what the export market. Oh, yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because it does go both ways. There may be retaliatory tariffs. But if you're just looking at the partial equilibrium perspective or just the perspective of uh, a local wine producer that mostly sells domestically, uh, then yes. So what happens is the demand for domestic beer is going to go up because all of a sudden uh, imported, I'm saying beer, uh, domestic wine goes up. This is a beer podcast. It's hard to, hard to switch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The man for domestic wine is going to go up because people are going to be uh, switching away from imported wines, which are now much more expensive, and into domestic wine. So that will drive the price up of your wine. So it's kind of a win for producers. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily, it's a, lo- it's, a, it's a loss for consumers. Pretty much, no matter what, where you are, you're going to pay more for wine, both domestic and imported. So be aware, mm-hmm. uh, which is generally how tariffs how tariffs work. Right. Uh, but yes, I mean, if you're if you are a, a domestic wine producer, at least in the short term, uh, that would uh, be good for you. If you if this was a tariff that lasted for a long time, then there would be interesting industry dynamics and and so on that. Right, it would come to shape itself around those realities. Uh, yeah, you might see more domestically produced wine. You might see importation of foreign grapes, and that's produced into wine locally. And right, so there's a lot, there's other things. But in the short term, yes, if I was a domestic wine producer, that would be kind of sweet. Uh, but I bet that I would be a little concerned overall. Like I, I, I don't think too many would be wholehearted supporters because a trade war in your industry is often 
long term not a great thing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And and I think your point about pricing is probably a big deal, especially in an industry where the prices are already pretty high and there's probably not a lot of elasticity. So Yeah. Uh so that's And it's interesting. I, I did that thought experiment. I threw that thing in there about the Mexican beer. What you pointed out, I think, is exactly what would happen if if a big tariff got placed on Mexican beer, uh Modelo would just come across the border and brew the beer here and in America and they'd be fine and they would still sell Modelo and, and it would just be made in America. And it's really easy to move beer, beer that way. Yes. I was going to say, yeah, like you could, yeah, you can, you can create a Modelo brand anywhere. Right. So, exactly. um, uh, sorry, the Modelo recipe anywhere. Uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I did kind of punt on the Mexican beer stuff, but yeah, I actually don't think you'd see much at all in terms of Mexican beer. Yeah. You might, they might tout that then as a win, right? Because you're getting more production in the U.S. rather than right. Mexico. But, right. um, uh, but the other problem is that I bet we sell, sell a lot of American beer in Mexico too. So, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, the next item is that Vine Pear recently had an end of the year worst trends roundup, and it makes fascinating fascinating reading. What worries? Ona files. Just keep going, man. Just fix it on the fly. No, no, no. It's it's the word. Ona is it Ona is oh, that Eno, I'm sorry, Enophiles. Enophiles, thank you. Yeah. Uh well, white claw for starters. Also snobbishness, C B D avid additives, social media influencers, and cans. Maybe the two industries aren't as different as we think. All right, so basically we're talking about the wine industry again. Yeah, and it, it's, I, I was shocked as I was reading through it. I was like, man, it's the same thing. They're worried about so much of the same stuff. So they're worried about like other alcoholic drink, like spritzers in this case, seltzers yeah. in this case. Uh, snobbishness. Yeah, so they, they have a, a, a thing that, a big thing that's happening in the craft beer industry right now is everybody is talking about how uh, it's, it's very elitist and there are this, uh, this unwelcoming. Tier, yeah. Unwelcoming. Uh -huh. And, um, if for a lot of ways and, and that's happening in, in wine too, which I'm sure that's always been the case in wine, but it's a thing that they're worried about. Yeah. I, I, uh, I definitely sense that in wine. I find wine hard to penetrate because, you know, you have to know about terroir, vintage, yeah, uh, and then you have to know about specifics like this winery, even though this was a good year, maybe they didn't do so well, but this other winery did. And so there's a lot of very deep inside information and it does feel like a barrier. Yeah. For uh, me, that's a big deal. But uh, apparently, I'm, I don't know, it's interesting to read industry. This thing was, that my pair had was industry people like vintners and other people, sommeliers, who were just saying what what the trends they didn't like affecting their industry. Yeah. Cause I think in the, in the beer industry, <clears throat> uh, there's this giant fear of wine. Like wine is encroaching and uh -huh. the, you know, it's this big bad. And really? you look at wine. Yeah. I mean, beer, beer sales have stalled out mm -hmm. and relative to beer sales, wine and, uh, uh, liquor sales are doing well. Okay. Um, but I, but you know, I think when you look at it from inside an industry, you get a different story and it's interesting to go and see, I, I, reading that vine pear article was very much like reading a beer, an article about <laughs> beer. It's just that it seems like these industries are different and they have a lot of points of difference, but, but maybe they have a lot of points of similarity as well. Yeah. Well, the, well, we'll probably get into this as we talk about beer cities, but, uh, the snobbishness aspect, I think a lot of it has to do with just how open you are to, uh, how knowledgeable are the people that serve you the beer and how open you are to a quick explanation because i often fear beer is pretty easy to decode yeah a lot of it at least 
Yeah. Uh, and um, you can become an insider really quickly without a whole lot of special knowledge and you don't have to keep refreshing like you do every year in wine. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 2017 in Burgundy was terrible because of, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Uh, well, Which is bad for me because it means experts are not very valuable in beer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, wine writers are these revered <laughs> beings who grace the earth uh, lightly. And yeah, that's everyone. actually a good point. Like, yeah. you can make a pretty like think about Robert Parker and what he did with his little wine thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wine really people, make... sommeliers, and, and wine writers have a lot of power, and beer writers have no power. No one respects us or even knows us. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. I don't respect you. I, I case in point. And I, and <laughs> even though I know you. <laughs> Though, to be fair, you didn't respect me before either. So. That's true. I was gonna <laughs> you say. never respected me. That nothing has changed. <laughs> Even if you wrote about wine, I probably wouldn't respect you. <laughs> That's definitely true. I would guarantee that. All right. Okay. So we're going to talk, we want to talk about what makes it. The, the feelings mutual. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> okay. We want to talk about what makes a good beer city. Uh, Smart Asset has uh, recently put out a list. Yeah. And this is what kind of sparked it, sparked me, uh, to pitch this to you because I went to the list and I looked at the, uh, yeah, I looked at the list and it had a bunch of beer. One of many lists, by the way. Yeah. But... Millions of lists and, right. it, and it had a bunch of cities on there. And then they said, oh, here's our criteria, which is weird. Why not just say random cities? It seems like they, a lot of times that's what happens. So they had their criteria and you can go ahead and read them. Uh, cause I just found them super bizarre. So a uh, number of breweries. So that's, that's okay. That's okay. That's sort of typical where you'd start, right? Yeah. Breweries per a thousand residents. So penetration. Yeah, so that's good. Compare big versus small. I got to have some kind of normalization. Sure. Bars per a thousand residents. Maybe. Uh, just bars anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's a, like Wisconsin, Wisconsin's going to score very high on this. <laughs> I don't know what a that means. A lot of taverns in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, the average numbers of beers per brewery. Now that's just weird. Totally random. Yeah. Has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Like, why would that necessarily be a good thing? Yeah. Who knows? And then the average price of beer. Also, uh, weird structural thing. Like, of course, beer is going to be a lot cheaper in economy in states. Yeah. By the way, economy. right. Is this cost of living adjusted? Probably not. No, it's not. But I this, so, it. so here, this is actually a good jumping off point because what I suggested we do when we were talking about this podcast was that we both go off and think independently about what we think are the right things to think about in terms of what makes a good beer city. Yeah. And the first thing that pops into your mind is if you're just some random media organization, which I think a lot of these places are like, you know, three people in a basement somewhere with a couple of computers and just trying to generate new lists every, <laughs> every 20 minutes, <laughs> every 20 minutes, right? You just that's, got, that's, that's media in 2020. It is. <laughs> that's the New York Times. People don't realize, but it's just three guys with a computer in the basement. <laughs> Making lists. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, uh, what you do if you're in those is you just get some easily collectible uh, uh, metrics. Yeah. You know, brewery, just some stats. Yeah. You throw together some stats and you say, okay, so here's how we've done it and here's our list because of it. Uh, which is probably about the worst way to start because... Uh, a lot of what makes a great beer city is stuff that you can't just measure and grow stats. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those downsides of the, of data journalism is people equate, uh, conflate something you can count with something that means something. And, uh, that, that smart asset list we just read is, you know, you're plugging numbers in, you're getting things out. It's data-based, um, you know, Cincinnati has cheap beer, so they rise up the list or whatever it is. Right. But that does, but 
does it actually function as journalism? Not so much. Yeah, it's interesting, by the way, just to make sort of a meta point here, which is that I work in a, an interdisciplinary school with sociologists, particularly also political scientists who do a bunch of qualitative work and people who do qualitative research. Uh, you know, are they really being battered by this whole big data revolution thing? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, oh, big data is fantastic. But it does, it has led to, I think, uh, an unnecessary um, or an unwarranted cheapening of qualitative uh, research, which in tons and tons and tons of applications is really what you need and, and data is not going to help you. So yeah, there it's, you go. It's, uh, this is one of these times, I think. Old computer uh, and uh, com computer people used to say bad data in, bad data out. So right there you go. So I was thinking about some of the typical metrics you see. Yeah. Just to, I'm going to read we're gonna have a, a, an immediate, a quick beer Sherpa, and then we're going to, we're going to see what your criteria, we, we haven't coordinated notes. We even have separate sheets of paper. Neither has been allowed to reveal. No. But before we do that, just another kind of example of different ways to think about beer cities, okay. because it all, what, what you think of a beer, a good beer city depends on what you define what, what, you, what the parameters are. And Kyle Navis, who is somebody who, uh, 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 longtime friend of the podcast who recently wrote in, uh, we had an exchange and he wrote back after the podcast and he, uh, wrote about Washington DC in a way that I thought was a perfect lead into this before. So we, before we come to yours, uh, this is kind of surfaces. It depends on what you, what you use your basis of judgment. So he says, yep. uh, DC is a beer town in the sense that it has easy access to world-class beer, but it's not a beer town in the way basically any West Coast city is. That is, your median bar actually has pretty bland selection. That and the breweries lack the competition needed to really make the quality jump, uh, the, to make the quality jump you see elsewhere. There are some real gems, right proper, blue jacket, but it's not remotely as good on average and per capita breweries is pitifully low. So again, if you value uh, availability of beer from elsewhere, DC is going to look better than if you don't value that. Yeah, we um, yeah, uh, we can talk a little bit more about DC. DC is an interesting city in lots of ways, kind yeah. of a unique city in lots of ways. But yeah, the one we, we weirdly have a fair number of listeners in DC. So <laughs> hello, Washington. Hey, DC! Uh, <laughs> congratulations on the World Series. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the thing I only I lived in DC for only six months, but the thing that struck me in DC as the same thing that strikes everybody was that everybody's from somewhere else, everybody's passing through, everybody's super focused on their careers and blah blah blah. But uh, it also means that there's people from everywhere, and so you tend to get, and not just nationally but internationally as well. It's right. a really international city, and right. so it's a place where since there's not a lot of local culture, is you can pretty much find almost any other culture you want, including different beers from all over and different foods and things like that, which is pretty fun. Right. So let's put a pin in DC and we can come back and see. We'll, we we'll, we'll assess later whether we yeah. think it's good or not. So what, so the way I was going to say, what, the, what do you come up with? Well, the way I started was thinking about the typical metrics that, you know, if I was making a listicle, I would, you know, easy grab. <clears throat> and then we can talk about why these are insufficient. So some of the same things we talked about, just number of gross number of breweries, breweries per population, breweries per area, per square mile, uh, overall volume, um, the average size of a brewery, maybe. Um, there was some stuff that I hadn't, I hadn't thought that you'd think about. Uh, in their case, the average price of beer and the number of beers per brewery. The number of beers per brewery, that's not an easy one. How, how did they do that? 
they must have trolled a bunch of websites or something. That's yeah, I have no that's idea. That's an odd good, one, right? It's a really good point. That's that not that's not, all the time. that's not data that's easy to collect. Yeah. So that actually just sort of the uh, the weird one in there. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask me, average price of beer, I think you could just get nationally national statistics and tell you a whole lot because it's going to have to do with some of the availability of local loggers and things. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, so um, all of those, I think, leave me cold. Mm -hmm. because when I think about what makes a good beer city, I think a lot about sort of just the culture of craft beer that exists in that city. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is where I think we're probably going to agree a lot. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we're, we're really on the same page here. Uh, and so, so there's some things you can potentially measure, I suppose. Um, but I, uh, uh, well, actually, let me backtrack and say the part of the, his comment, um, Kyle's comment about DC that really resonates, um, because I've traveled a fair amount, well, have in the past, recently haven't done as much, but um, con you know, going to conferences and things, and and you'll pop into a uh, a city, and all tend to be in a fairly bland setting. So I'll be in some like you know big chain hotel, like a Hilton or Marriott, uh, usually in the part of a city where there's a bunch of like chain restaurants or bigger restaurants that service people like me who are at conventions or conferences and things like that. Yeah, but it's kind of a good way to see like does it's the a really good way does the hotel bar offer craft beer. And if you're anywhere in the vicinity of the Midwest, is it anything other than Goose Island honker? <laughs> is there somebody local? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's an, that's an interesting thing. When I was in Durham, North Carolina, we went to the Holiday Inn bar uh -huh. at the hotel I was staying at, yeah. and, uh, at a Holiday Inn, and they had like three or four local breweries. And I thought, this is really impressive. This is, you know, this is the best argument I've seen for North Carolina's maturity as a brewing state. Yeah, uh, I was really impressed with that. And it's, you're right, it's kind of an obscure thing, but I think it's pretty good. And later I was in someplace on the East Coast and they had a Sam Adams and a Guinness and a something else, like totally bland stuff. Right. So I would say sort of the first level of craft beer penetration has happened almost everywhere in the US. In other words, you yeah. can go to that hotel bar or to that sort of chain restaurant and you'll find a, a Sam Adams, maybe a Sierra Nevada Pale, you know, right. some of those old old now that are widely available regional breweries in uh, uh, Goose Island's another one you often find those kinds of things depending on where you are will change subtly you know you're more likely to find Sam Adams if I mean uh, yeah Sam Adams if you're on the east coast more likely to find Sierra Nevada if you're on the west coast things like that but uh, do you actually find sort of a thoughtful selection of local beer um, on tap right uh, so that's that's a, a you know a good jumping off point, and that's usually my first because that's my first exposure. That's my first metric. Uh, um, it's just like, are there real sort of local craft beers available in those situations? Um, by the way, I always find it a really a missed opportunity because those are the places where you're always getting people from all over. And if I was a hotel bar manager, I would think I want to give people a sense of they're always doing these ersatz local flavor like they'll have pictures of the city up yeah you know and they'll have like other things you know if you're in philadelphia for sure your hotel is going to have a picture of the liberty bell like hey you're in philadelphia don't forget because it's very easy to forget since everything else is completely cookie cutter uh but this is an easy way if you're a if you're a local bar manager at the hilton to to give a sense of local local flavor and local culture totally uh okay so let me so some of the more nuanced 
uh, metrics, I think. Um, the different styles of beer that exist in the local craft beer. So, you know, do you have, and by this, not just the the offerings you get across the board, but are there breweries that specialize in, you know, Belgian style beers or lagering and things like that? I think that's uh, uh, a nice feature of a good beer city. Um, how local is the scene? I, I debated this one uh, because a lot of this is informed by our own our own city. Um, but one of the yeah. things that, that strikes me as really nice is it's not, it's not just a city by city thing, but as you, as you mature as a beer city, you get, you get more and more and more granular in the sense that now we have sort of neighborhood breweries, like this neighborhood is where mm -hmm. this brewery is and this neighborhood is this brewery. And so, uh, it becomes ever more local, um, which is interesting. I think it's also just a trend in craft beers as well. Uh, I think the age of the the maturity of the beer scene also matters a lot because it's slow i think it's something that slowly seeps into the whole hmm. sort of culture and zeitgeist um you start uh and well, I'll, I'll i'll double back to this because i'm interested in sort of the supply versus demand evolution uh uh the consistency of quality mm -hmm. that's a big one uh so i think that mature hard to measure but big but but uh mature beer cities have we have weeded out the mediocre breweries. Right. So what's the median brewery? And you can look at the median brewery and, and the quality of that brewery yeah. and could tell a lot, I think. How likely is it if you go to like a craft beer bar and pick a beer at random, is it going to be a mediocre beer versus a high quality beer? Right. In, in Portland, you have to work super hard to find something that's not anything less than like really good. Yeah. And we definitely have bad breweries. Like every place on the planet has bad breweries, yeah. you know? I, I, and we used to have a lot of them. Well, yeah. we used to have a fair amount. You, it used to be fairly easy to get a pretty bad beer. But they're, uh, they're pretty rare. But now, uh, and this is sort of the maturity aspect, I think that the, the, the culture is so deep that you can't get away with a bad beer very much anymore. Certainly not outside your own tap room. <laughs> People are pretty forgiving, I think, if you say, hey, this is my experimental thing. Right. <laughs> it didn't really work, but you want to buy it? <laughs> Uh, where am I? Uh, oh, and then innovation. I think that innovation is, is a good hallmark, um, of a good beer city and beer scene. So those are my, my next sort of level. Okay. You want it, So how do those coincide with yours? Well, let's have a beer first here. Cause we have three. We gotta, oh yeah. Gotta start drinking. Let's go oh. to a beer city. I'm gonna, uh, yeah. I actually, do you have a preference? No, let's start. The one that in my hand is always the, the, best, <laughs> the best beer available. That's a, my favorite beer, right? Yeah, that's a, a wonderful old Fred Eckhart quote. So, <laughs> congratulations. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my sense of all of this is idiosyncratic in that it's informed by a, kind of an international look at things, and uh -huh. I I've traveled a lot, and so I think about uh, I think if you only think about America, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult just because. Uh, aside from Milwaukee, um, you know, there's a, a couple of cities that have pretty old brewing traditions that were extant right. uh, into the modern era. Yeah. Um, it looks very different, but if you go to Europe, uh, it actually, and you say is, uh, is, um, uh, I'm trying to think of that. Ren, uh, is Paris a good beer city? Mm. Uh, how does Paris compare to Brussels and why, and how would we describe the difference between these mm. two beer cities? Like, because you can get beer in, in Paris, you can get beer anywhere in, in Europe, but, but some of these are, we would consider them good beer cities and some are bad beer cities. So what are the kind of fixtures 
that define good beer cities in Europe. And that's true. And I'll admit that I was just thinking of the U.S. when I was really noodling on this stuff. Yeah. Well, it's. I think ultimately we care more about the U.S. and it's more interesting in the U.S. because it's more difficult to look at. But uh, I think there are a couple. I think there are a couple of things. And the fact that they uh, make Oregon, Portland, Oregon, look like the best beer city in the world has nothing to do with my. Uh, preference for those, those <laughs> all right uh i'm gonna stop you this is yep. highlight india pale ale from cigar city tampa florida okay thank you yes tampa florida so which i have been to and it's actually quite a good beer city i was really surprised about this i went into a little brewery uh called hidden springs that uh had been open this is in uh, 2015 so been, but it had been open less than six months and they were making some banging beer really good stuff it's uh, i i hesitated there because um i associate highlight with miami but i guess they must have highlight in in tampa too i guess so and it's funny because uh, i always thought cigar city i thought cigars were made in miami as well too so that was always confusing to me but i truth is, i don't know anything about florida so. <laughs> yeah i've never been to tampa i have been to miami uh i've also been to miami uh tampa's uh, a better beer city than miami sorry or at least it was in 2015 okay yeah yeah good good yeah. Uh, <laughs> good qualifier there by the way it's ap apropos of absolutely nothing but the only exposure i've had to highlight has been in macau in which they had like big highlight policies where people would go and bet on highlight matches. Game, but the game, not the beer. <laughs> yes, the game. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, I thought that was fascinating. It was fun going to Macau. Uh, okay, so yeah. this is a fairly cloudy IPA. Yep. This is an old. I think we're going to take. I think this, this is an. Oh, that's definitely old school. It's an old school. So this uh, is a kind of a, a super famous brew, uh, beer, but it's, you know. It's mm. super famous because it's been around a decade or more. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, it smells like it smells like uh, West Coast. Mm -hmm. it sure does. It smells. Like, it tastes like it smells West like Coast a, too. Smells like a tastes like a. Yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, I actually really like that. That's um, that is full of all that citrusy goodness, mm -hmm. but it's pretty. It is pretty soft and uh, and it's got a fairly bitter. yeah, and it's got a fairly good um, uh, malt base. Yeah, profile that comes through. Yeah, uh, it supports. It supports the whole thing without interfering. It's not heavy caramel base, but it's nice and uh, bready. It's nice. Yeah. Well done. This is I've like... had this beer, but it's been you know, it's been a while. As, as oh, and it is. Yeah, I was about to say it tastes a little uh, alcoholic. <laughs> and yep, it's a seven point five. <laughs> After I just took like three huge gulps. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Hey, man. I didn't, no one was forcing you to drink that. No, but that's really good. It's really good, though. I have so. to say that's really that's. Uh, it definitely represents a, a time, a place and time in, in IPAs, but one which I appreciate a lot. It's aged really well. It has. I, it's got I, just I, enough citrus, but it also has some of those piney notes. I doubt very few people would. It's got a nice big bitter back and a, and a smooth malt base to support all of that alcohol and yeah, and hop. If you like if you like IPAs, it would be hard not to like that. Uh, I am surprised, however, that seven point five percent in a hot. Muggy Florida. I know. I know. It's so weird. Florida, Floridians uh, drink a lot of big IPAs, stouts. When they're sitting in air conditioning. I guess so. It must be. It has to be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> On the beach, especially in Miami, uh, they're drinking either they're drinking cocktails or they're drinking uh, light beer. Yeah. And light beer tastes heavy, you know, and it's 85, <laughs> 85 degrees, 85% humidity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Indeed. So getting back to my, my thing. Uh, it all kind of crystallized when you and I were standing on top of the uh, Green King Brewery. 
Yeah. And John Beckson looked out and he said, there's where we grow our barley. And then he, he pointed over and he said, there's where we grow our hops. And he said, come over here. We walked around to the other side of the building. We're on the fifth, the fifth, uh, story, the, the roof of a five story tower, the tower brewery. Victorian brewery. And it was, so it was the tallest building in the city. So you had a really good view of everything. Yeah. And it, would, it also occupied a high point in the city, which I think had a lot to do with the gravity and water too. So. Probably true. Yeah, probably true. Uh, so we walked around to the other side and he pointed, he said, there's our malt house. Right. Yep. And it really stuck in my head because it was my first stop when I was doing the beer rival tour. And then I got to Brussels and uh, there, are, there are local maltsters, there's local barley production, there's local hop production. Mm-hmm. Um, Leuven is right outside of Brussels. It's where the people are trained to breed brewers. Mm-hmm. Um, that is also the case in the UK. There's brewing schools. Then I went to, uh, uh, Munich and you have the Hollertau hop fields just north of Munich. You have tons of little malt houses and, uh, local growers. Mm -hmm. Then I went to Czech Republic and, and I'm starting to see a theme here, right? It's like, if you have, uh, uh, a place where you've been making beer for, uh, centuries and it's really embedded in the culture. You see all these fixtures that grow up to support it. Yeah, but I'm going to push back and say. And wait, let oh. one and one other big one okay, other big sorry. thing, and probably the biggest thing yeah. is in these cities you have native beer styles that were found that were formed in those cities. Sure. And are endemic to those cities. Right. Uh, and uh, this is actually a a pretty relevant point that I'm going to come back to when we talk about the United States. Okay, but I was going to say that that to me strikes as a very uh, historical view of brewing and and what makes a good. Oh, hello, whoa! <laughs> I don't know how much is going to come through on the mic, but it's certainly coming through my monitor. Uh, Just playing with his little microphone stand sorry. for some unknown reason, uh, <laughs> and it's making sort of wild noises. Sorry about that. That'd be folks. kind of cool if it comes through. I hope so because right. it's kind of like Star Wars. And, yeah. And the beer fun podcast. Uh, so what I was going to push back on this, I think this is, effect. I think this is a very, uh, historical view because you're talking about beer cities that grew up precisely because transportation was hard. Right. And so everything is local, uh, and including sort of a specific style to, that depended on the specific crops you could types of hops and malts and stuff that you had locally, uh, at least in part. Um, and so that's a very historical view and, and, uh, how do you sync that with the modern era in which I can get, you know, Yakima hops down in Tampa, Florida? Yeah. Uh, I square it this way. Uh, okay. already in the United States, we're seeing, uh, malt houses, barley growers, and, uh, hop fields all spreading all around the United States. Uh, Michigan is a big leader in new hop fields outside of the Pacific North, outside of mm-hmm. the commercial center of the Pacific Northwest. So you're actually seeing the same thing happen, which is once you have culture, you have supportive industries and yeah. you have people who are interested in the terroir of the, the local area. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly the same thing that happened in, uh, these other, these other places you have growing brewing industries that are local and right. it's easier and cheaper to, to, uh, support them if you're barley fields are right there. And so you start to see that happening and we're actually already seeing that happening in the United States. And I agree that it's not exactly fair to say, well, we, we're super cool. We're a better beer city because the hop fields happen to have been planted here a hundred years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what I was pushing back on, but it sounds like we're actually making a similar point. Um, 
again we did this in isolation i know so true. i was going to do my little we think too much alike, i was going to do my little beeronomics uh breakout here which is exactly keep... about this phenomena which is in economics uh has a couple names but one of the names we talk about is called clusters and clustering which yeah. is uh <laughs> no but i think it's, it's in... really cool that we came i came through this from a culture side and you came to it from a econ side and we came to the same place that's pretty cool yeah so the basic idea is uh, why do uh, a large number of companies in the same industry all choose to locate close together. And Portland's a great example for another reason, which is we have this sportswear athletic, uh, athletic gear, sportswear athletic gear, shoe uh, industry here um, because of Nike uh, and their ascendance. Why are you looking at me so weird? Like, oh yeah, that's a big head. Well, yeah. that, there's that, but I'm also thinking, how does this relate to beer? I'm just waiting to see how you, you bring this back to beer. Yeah. So, uh, the North American headquarters of Adidas is here. Uh, Under Armour opened a new office here. There are a bunch of other sportswear companies that have started here, um, and exist. Columbia sportswear is here. And so, uh, you might ask, well, doesn't it make more sense to locate elsewhere where you can have the market to yourself rather than locate together. And the idea is that there are a lot of efficiencies, a lot of reasons that you, you locate close together. So, uh, a talent pool, um, uh, people come and go, uh, but having this sort of common, uh, access to, uh, people with this, the, with the right skills is important. So it's very easy to find a new brewer. If you're in Portland, Oregon, a really experienced right. brewer, uh, someone that you can attract quite easily because you don't have to move them. You don't have to do all this other stuff, convince them to move to whatever part, uh, for example. And so that creates an efficiency. There's also external economies of scale, which mm -hmm. for example, like, uh, when the craft beer industry first starting in Oregon, uh, these mobile bottlers popped up. And so now you could have someone with right. a truck come to your, to your brewery and they bottle for you. And, uh, and all, and that only existed because there was enough customers around. Right. Um, that uh, would actually be a, a decent, that would be better than number of beers brewed at a brewery, <laughs> number of mobile bottles, bottlers. In your city. So we call this external economy scale. You could also say that the locally grown hops and barley is something, um, that follows that same trend. <clears throat> if there's enough breweries, suddenly there's a reason to grow grow your own hops and now you can source them locally and you don't have to pay for the you know the transport from yakima valley for example uh there's a lot of knowledge spillovers as well so being around in portland oregon if you're a brewer uh you're able to on a daily basis sample all kinds of great beers from all kinds of different brewers and immediately sort of start thinking yeah. about the way that beer is evolving new kinds of beers you could brew and that's almost invaluable, I think. And it's really hard if you're off in, um, you know, uh, uh, Wauwatosa, Wisconsin or something like that. It, and it's why Oregon and Portland had such a, a big advantage because we had an early burst of brewing. And so those, that knowledge base got built early. And so we just continue to increase our advantage as we went along. It's why our first fairly modern IPA came in 96, like, you know, decade or two before it came to other places. Yeah. And there's also just not only you're trying other people's beers, but you know, you're talking to other brewers and there's communities and, uh, and a lot of, a lot of sharing of knowledge and, and techniques and things like that. Uh, it's also a talent magnet. So people come here precisely because not only do they want to brew beer and get involved in the industry, but, uh, they might like to drink beer. And so that sort of, uh, um, uh, it's a self-reinforcing. So, um, I won't belabor the point too much, but I actually think that's interesting. Um, but I think now these, uh, clusters happen are able to happen more, um, 
hundreds of years ago, these clusters probably happened because of the the local terrain and the you know and the uh, hops and barley that were being grown locally. Yeah, uh, and now it can happen the other way around. Yeah, uh, right, right. Breweries can start, and then all of a sudden, it's like, hey, why don't we start growing hops? Because there's like 26 breweries around here. Yeah, it's a it, it it's totally how that stuff happens uh, culturally as well. Because uh, yeah, I'm just talking to brewers all the time, mm -hmm. and they like like this this highlight that we just had. Uh, it is a perfect West Coast IPA. But yeah. there's, a, there's a certain point at which you think, why am I making a West Coast IPA? I live in Florida. Right, right, What does right. what a Florida IPA look like? That's, yeah. how, that's how beer gets started, you know? Uh, every time there's a really big international beer style, whether it's porters from the uh, 18th century or pilsners from the 19th century or now IPAs, they become super popular and they spread out all over the world and people recreate them identically to what they taste. Yeah. But then eventually you have the creep as people try to bring their local stuff in. And one of the ways they do that is they use local barley varieties, yeah. malting techniques and hops. It's true because one of the things I would say is, is there a, an expression of local style or local culture? And it's hard yeah. if you don't have any local ingredients. Yeah. I mean, there are some things you can do, for example, um, uh, what, like Kona Brewing has a passion fruit wheat ale, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. now of course it's brewed here in Portland and sent everywhere. <laughs> but, but the point is originally, right, they thought about being in Hawaii and what kinds of ingredients you could add to beer. So they might not have any local hops or barley, but they either have local additives and, uh, and you can create this sort of unique local expression, which I love, Yeah, but it's actually kind of hard to find because craft beer in this modern age, people are looking for the well, hazy IPA that they had. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and there's a lot of copycats, but, yeah. uh, but on the other hand, uh, I do think that, I think one of the, the trends was, oh, you know, there is, there is an immediate adoption. So brewed IPA started in San Francisco and pretty soon it was nationwide. Mm -hmm. You do have that. But I think that uh, you're also seeing preferences. So in the hazy field, for example, we have a preference for more bitterness in the, in the Northwest because yeah. we, we had a pre-existing palate that preferred right. bitterness, whereas right. New England did not. They did not encounter hops until they came via hazy IPAs. They just love pure juice, no bitterness. So you get differences. All, All right, right yeah. so yeah, we you you snuck in this beer. We, I cracked a beer. Yeah, we didn't stop. We didn't stop and talk about it. So let's do the do so now. Uh, this is from Prairie Artisan Ales, uh, which is a brewery in Oklahoma. What was where did we decide it was? Krebs, Krebs, Oklahoma, uh, which we, may or may not be a good beer town because we don't. Really, we know nothing we, about. We know nothing about Krebs, Krebs, Krebs but, but we've but you particularly have heard of Prairie Artisan Ales. I have, yeah. And it's this a, is called their standard. Hoppy Farmhouse Ale. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit with a melancholy note of uh, the Commons beer that we used to find at the Commons. So. Ah, yes. Speaking of local beer cultures and different styles, I was saying if you have different breweries that specialize in different styles, that yeah. speaks to a more mature beer culture to me and something that I think is a good sign of a uh, beer town. This is fascinating, however. I'm just, <laughs> I'm trying to talk. At the same time, I'm looking at their label, which is a fascinating little uh, sort of eight panel comic strip style thing that says how to noodle. And it looks like a way in which you- Oh, uh, uh, noodling, catching catfish? Catching catfish, yeah, exactly. I know how to, I know about noodling. Oh yeah, you're kind of a backwoods. 
hit, hit, hit kind of dude. Tell me. Tell me about noodling. The the look of derision that passed across your face when you realized that you were sitting with a, an Idaho born. An Idaho boy. Neck. Yes. Go uh, ahead. Well, I've only read about this. And I think, I think just to completely discredit myself, I read about it in the New Yorker. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you never should have mentioned that. But um, it's a thing in the South where they have very big catfish. Yes. And you, you put your hand yes. down in a hole. That's exactly what like it looks you, like. You stick one of your digits out. I think your thumb is typical. Uh-huh. And you wiggle it around. Yep. And then a catfish comes and gloms on it and you grab the catfish exactly. and you haul it out. That's exactly what this ca- this cartoon is showing you. <laughs> except in this case, the catfish is so big that it, it glommed it, onto the it, whole hand. Yeah. 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 I think that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing that Prairie, uh, sorry, Krebs, Idaho is, a, uh, Krebs, Idaho. All right, try again. Krebs, Oklahoma. Krebs, Oklahoma is a place in which you might go and find catfish. So, catfish. Um, so maybe it's like a, a town that's near some nice nature. Uh, people come and, and, and nature out. Well, that's local. Fish. Fish. I'll tell you what, yeah. noodling. All right, so here we go. Hockey farmhouse. Ooh. Hey. That's nice. It is very nice. Yeah. I like it a lot. Mm. I don't have any idea if it tastes like Oklahoma. Like, is this the beer that they're drinking in Oklahoma? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Little known fact, well, outside my own family, uh, my uh, grandparents are both from Oklahoma. And this says made by people that truly care from Oklahoma with love. 5.6 ABV. You should really care about my grandparents at all, did you? <laughs> you passed right over that. I was going to circle back to your grandparents. Uh, <laughs> your grandparents are from Oklahoma? Yeah. On which side? Uh, Butler, Oklahoma. Uh-huh. I don't know which side that is. No, I don't mean which side of Oklahoma, but your mom's? Yes. Your mom's yeah, folks? Yeah, my mom's. Yeah. My mom's folks. And they moved out here to Oregon in the 1930s, uh, following the land rush and trying to do what people did in the depression to try to, uh, find land that... To Eastern Oregon? To Eastern Oregon. And then eventually sort of migrated across the border. No, my mom. My, they never left. All my family's in Eastern Oregon, except for my mom, who, once she graduated from high school, went to the big city, which was Boise, Idaho, across yeah. the border. Robbing me of my birthright. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's... And causing you to have that derisive look on your face later. <laughs> yeah, don't. I uh, will say, uh, I think we can probably, I think we've, I think we've totally exhausted this, but go ahead. I'll, I'll add, um, uh, we've talked about the weak, weak metrics. A couple of the things that I would say that are, I think are, uh, interesting, uh, in terms of metrics and they're, they're hard to get a hold of, but, mm-hmm. um, the percent of people who drink local beer, mm-hmm. this is an important thing. Okay. Um, the, and we talked about this, the penetration of, of local beer into regular drinking holes. And I think the hotel test is a great one. Dive bar is another great one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, presence, and this is the, the last one I'll throw in there, the presence of old and or established breweries. I think this is an important, I think these are the, mm-hmm. the, the fixtures that create the kind of taproot for uh, brewing. And I have often looked at the United States and where craft beer culture is the strongest. And it is in places where you have, uh, you had pre-existing breweries. So in the, in the Northwest is very strong. We had Blitzweinhard, we had, uh, Rainier, we had Ole. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colorado is very strong. You have Coors. The Midwest is very strong and especially, uh, Wisconsin where mm-hmm. you have Miller and Pabst, um, Pennsylvania, where you have, uh, two or three old breweries. Like these are, these were the first places that developed beer culture in the United States. Right. And they had these old and established breweries. And I think even things like, uh, now going forward, uh, having old breweries like 
Sierra Nevada or Anchor are going to function uh, in that same kind of way in in creating that yeah. whole halo effect that you were talking about. Yeah, we saw ago. that in Bend when we went to Bend. Look for our podcast. That's right. Our five part series. <laughs> That's Bend right. Manga. But it was all because of Deschutes. And the great exactly. thing Good about point. those podcasts and all teas in them is that the origin story is amazing. It's random and yeah, totally. Uh, and so think about if you think about the great beer city that Bend is now. Uh, it started with one little decision about where to start a brew pub. Yeah, by one guy, and it was a little tiny brew pub, and it could have been completely. Uh, uh, inauspicious start, like not, yeah. it, 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 it wasn't <laughs> like when Gary Fish planted that brewery, he thought this will be a juggernaut. All right. So I did my clustering thing. I think that's a big, a big factor in that sort of the self-fulfilling sort of beer city prophecy kind of thing. I also talked about sort of other less easy to define metrics. Uh, and I, I, I decided to call it how died in the wool is the beer scene. And by that, I mean, sort of things like how many different personalities present themselves in beer, like lovers of Belgian beer, lover, uh, bel- uh, barrel-aged mm-hmm. people. And I both mean both producers of beer, Hopheads is another one, right? Uh, both producers of beer and consumers of beer. Like uh, how, you know, I think a really mature scene is where people can kind of find their, find their own niche and find their own people. And if you're a brewer and you're like, I really want to brew this style of beer, you can find consumers who will support that. Uh, you know, and that's hard. Like in Port- we just talked about Commons Brewery, not, not lasting in Portland, but. Yeah. Uh, also, the depth of the penetration. Some of this stuff you can see in 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 data. Some of it's a little harder. So, for example, um, how big is the selection in grocery stores? Um, uh, how much shelf space is they devote to local beer? Uh, we talked about dive bars or taverns. Mm-hmm. How much craft beer do you find in these sort of traditional places? <clears throat> what's the What's the mix in uh, on draft? Like how much right? how much good beer is being sold on draft? Yep. Uh, how how much are restaurants embracing craft beer? And by that, not only do I mean, does their beer list have them there, but how big is their beer list? Right. Right. So a lot of places you go to a restaurant and they don't care about beer. They don't care about wine. It's so they'll have one or two. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Portland, you'll usually find like six, seven, eight beers you can get. Uh, what else? And when I'm at those restaurants and I look around, nice restaurants in Portland, uh-huh. no one's drinking wine. They're all drinking beer. <laughs> There's like, you know, a few people drinking wine and mostly people drinking beer. Uh, and then how knowledgeable are the, are the locals? Um, and first and foremost, obviously the wait staff and the bar staff, the bartenders. Yeah. Uh, but also just how knowledgeable are the consumers? What kind of questions are they asking about their beer? So if, yeah. you, if you sit in a, in a, you know, sort of just a typical uh, place. I was like, where was I local? Oh, I had to do jury, jury duty. You did too. Oh, I wonder if you're going to tell the exact same story I was going to tell. No, there's absolutely no chance. Okay. But I, <laughs> as a, as an Arsenal fan, I was at jury duty and Arsenal were playing a lunchtime, oh, okay. locally yeah, a right. lunchtime game. Well, so I, I have my own jury duty story I'm going to tell after this. So. Good. All right. Well, a lot of jury duty, it's, it has, <laughs> it has its pluses. Anyway, we were let out for lunch and Arsenal were playing and I wanted to go find a place that was showing the Arsenal game. And where I was, downtown Portland. So there weren't a ton of options. I went into the yard house. Mm-hmm. That was a bust. So I wandered over to Buffalo Wild Wings. Oh yeah. So uh, complete national chain, complete national chain, cookie cutter, generic. Uh, it was good for me because I sat at the bar and there was this giant projection screen there showing the Arsenal game. So good. But uh, what it was remarkable, it wasn't so remarkable that they had a great beer list because I think probably that's true in most places. Uh, they're trying pretty hard to just feature local peers. Maybe, maybe that's a Portland thing, but I doubt it. But what was interesting to me is these people would wander in, it was a lunchtime crowd, uh, and they would ask questions about the beer. 
uh, and the bartender would have some answers. They weren't fantastic, but but just the the fact that they were asking questions and uh, getting answers about sort of you know things like hops and barley and the type of beer uh, that they were uh, suggested to me that this is a really mature beer city. Like and you, like that's just expected now. So here's my story. Okay. <laughs> uh, at uh, the, you, you, when you go to Jersey, they put you in this big pit, it's overheated and it's terrible and you sit there for eight hours waiting to be called. And there's this wonderful little woman, uh, and I mean little, she was like, couldn't have been five <laughs> feet tall. She was super tiny little woman. Yes, I know. And uh, she would periodically go up there and tell us jokes or ask us trivia questions oh. just to kind of try to keep us from killing each other. Wow. Oh. Uh, and she was incredibly charming and I really liked her. Um, and at one point she came up and she said, okay, who knows some facts about Portland? What's the state bird? And she was going through this and she said, what's the state drink? And there was a pot. And at this point it was late in the day and nobody was, nobody was really answering stuff. So there was always a lot of dead air after right. she'd ask the question. So there's this long dead air. And then one lone voice said IPA <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I thought, yep, there you go. Portland, Oregon. Yeah. It's actually milk which is weird. Like this is the things that the state has passed as, you know, like there's <laughs> resolution. A, yeah. A resolution. The state beer shall be milk. That was the, dairy. no, it was the state drink. State that, drink. that was the, the dairy. Drink. Sorry. Not the, yeah. The state drink. Yeah. That was the dairy farmers association. Exactly. That had they, that one passed. They totally got that passed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we should, we should carry on. We're getting along here. Okay. Uh, I, uh, so I have another last, oh. last final point. Oh, for God's sakes, man. Yeah. Well, there's actually two final, two final points. Of but, course you do. All right. So, uh, here's an economic, my economics point. Um, so, uh, what I was thinking as I was noodling through this stuff is I really think that the final, the final evolution of the maturity is the sort of demand side maturity. Cause I, f I kind of think oh, yeah. this is that supply side happens first and that, that sort of generates this derived demand. Like nobody knows they want a Belgian beer until people start making them and showing what a Belgian beer is, or nobody wants a nice farmhouse or saison. Uh, until that happens. And so uh, I think about the supply that sort of creates that own demand and the deepening of the demand, the broadening of the demand. And um, and Oregon, as we talked about before, I think is now has a, a, a whole generation of native craft beer drinkers that have grown up not only with just like the IPA and the pale, but now the people that are coming on, coming of age uh, are used to all of these different styles. Yeah, um, totally. Uh, they don't drink nearly as much cheap beer. They recognize quality. They're interested in variety. They're interested in new experiences. They show up everywhere. They're in restaurants. They're in supermarkets, convenience stores. Um, so uh, everybody is now sort of catering to those. Uh, I even mentioned that in the culture, it's a big thing. You know, we have a local newspaper that's almost, as far as I can tell, staffed by three people in the basement yeah. on computers. Oh, you mean the Oregonian? <laughs> the Oregonian. <laughs> uh, they still, uh, I don't think, I don't know if he's a staff writer, but he's, they still have a full-time beer person, the person who writes about beer all the time. Oh yeah, Andre, he's actually doing good work. Yeah, no, he's doing great he, work. He must be one of the three people. I know, but what I'm saying is, like, <laughs> they go where the culture is, and right now the culture of beer is so deep in Portland, Oregon, that it's worth them having this person. Right. Uh, in fact, you'd think that wine, wine is huge in Oregon, uh, but they don't have a similar person in wine, right? That's right. So That's it's right. really part of the local uh, beer scene. 
Okay, so I want to say that. And then the second point I always wanted to make was, I think that uh, city is a little bit limiting because there's a lot of places that don't have big cities around. Maybe Krebs, Oklahoma is another one of these cases where I think that in some places, Maine, since you and I both have visited and talked about the Maine beer scene, it's not really a city scene. There's a bit in Portland, Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can almost talk about sort of the, the, the regional scene or the statewide scene. Um, I think has a lot of those same characteristics where they feed off each other, where there's talent pools, where there's mixing and matching and, and they create their own culture. Yeah. Everyone focuses on Portland, but I agree that it's very difficult to distinguish between Portland and Eugene, yeah. Bend, Hood River, Astoria. Like you pick a town and it, what we're saying applies equally to all of them. It is regional. I agree. Yeah. All right, so those are my points. Whoops, I threw, threw a May script. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> the podcast's over. <laughs> so I assume that we agree after having gone through this that Portland, Oregon is indeed the best American. Oh, yeah, uh, there was never any doubt yeah. about that. <laughs> 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 <No>. Clearly. <laughs> well, people listening will know that uh, we're not uh, very... Uh, mm. We're homers. We're homers. Yeah. I, well, so I would say, which is probably actually evidence of our good beer city. Yeah. Right? No, I do actually think it's it's probably <laughs> objectively in in most ways what I would call the best beer city. But I would say that that's not enough. Like, I still want to go visit all these other places. Sure. I mean, uh, uh, Cologne, Germany, is a wonderful beer city. Sure. It's, it's one of the best beer cities in the world. They sell Kolsch there. Yeah. So if you, eventually you get tired <laughs> of Kolsch, which might happen, who knows? Uh, you need to go to Dusseldorf at least to get something different and probably want to try some other beer. So yeah, yeah I agree. Because no matter it's, how deep- Variety and, is good. Yeah, no matter how deep and how broad the scene is here in Portland, I'd still be delighted to find out like what's going on in Asheville, what's going on in- I mean, when we went to Deschutes- uh, like Boston Bend, was hilarious. Well, we, Boston was fascinating. You could see the difference between Bend and Portland, just yeah. Bend and Portland. Yeah. So yeah, if you're going to go to, if we're going to go to Cleveland, like we've been invited to do, it's on my agenda. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's definitely going to look a lot different. So, I'm, yeah. By I'm, the way, <laughs> we should have broken in earlier, but I should say before we go any further, Jeff. Oh yeah, <laughs> we'd like to thank Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring the Beer Vana podcast. Freem has a new slate of beers coming out this winter, including Citrus Zest IPA made with tangelo and grapefruit zest to highlight the citrusy, citrusy character of Northwest hops, and Vienna Lager made with European malt and hops. And nectarine golden ale aged on flavor top nectarines in Sauvignon Blanc barrels and lemon zest farmhouse ale, a Belgium meets America take on a classic saison. Ooh, I'm going to like that. I bet my wife will like that one too. Yeah. Uh, I, I have not had it, but I, I bet I would like it. I've had the nectarine and that sucker is tasty. Yeah. The nectarines. I, it's so interesting. When I grew up, you know, there was, I've had that one too. there was peach. And, it, and there was peaches, and mm -hmm. I didn't know there were different kinds of peaches. There mm -hmm. was peach, and now nectarine apparently is the same th same thing. There's flavor top nectarine. What's the the world is so much more complex than I understood. <laughs> but they are apparently really good at nectarines because that thing is really tasty. Yep. It's that perfect blend of sweet and acidity, kind of tilted towards the almost indulgent sweet side with just enough acidity to, to yeah. back it up and whew, it is nice. a really fabulous beer you should definitely check out the nectarine golden nail it reminds me of that amazing uh peach sour that uh ron gansberg did at cascade mm. yeah um which was uh sublime uh really able to really feature that flavor without it being cloying, cloying or sweet or just lovely drinkable beer okay uh what i wanted to say was that uh, talking about best beer cities or beer culture is, um, I think, less helpful than just talking about cities that are have really good beer 
uh, culture because those mm-hmm. are the ones that I, I want to visit. But. Yeah, me too. I feel the same way. Get distinctive and then then you're there. Yeah. Uh, if you just have a generic beer culture, it's not so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Cool. Hey, we, we still have another beer to crack. It's, it's true. I, I'm going to, we're going to, we, we've got a, a bit of an extensive, this is going to, this is going to run long. So hello. Goodbye, radio people. We may be losing you now, um, <laughs> but, um, they don't get to hear the mailbag. The mailbag is coming for those of you who are sticking around for the podcast. Uh, and we can, uh, crack this last beer as we're doing the podcast and we'll just do a long pod edit for this I, one. I only, I only cracked this last one because it's a good uh, promo for the Seattle series of podcasts we've done in the past. So go look for those. There you go. Because this is a Fremont interurban India Pale Ale. This is old school. It is. I mean, it's not super old school, but the, such is the half-life of uh, IPAs that... Yeah, like two years ago is old school, man. Right, exactly. So this, <laughs> I think this dates back like six years. So my oh, God. Oh, man. You know, I don't even remember that. It's like long Jurassic ago. beer. Yeah, mm, I remember this though. Well, we visited the Fremont Brewery. We did in our series. In on... our series, and have an extended in- interview, which is fascinating. By the way, one of the better ones I think we've done. I thought it was really. Uh, it was again. It turns out Seattle's really different than Portland, mm-hmm. and we learned that, and that was great. So Seattle's a great beer city and a different beer city. So you got to go visit all of them. So before we get to the mailbag, there's a Sherpa I want to mention. Oh, I was. Uh, over the uh, Christmas holiday, um, on Christmas Day, I was actually on the beach at Pacific City, which oh, is yes. uh, a wonderful place. It was sunny and warm, which was super weird. And Global if you're into warming, beer, it has a special. It's true. It's where Pelican is. It's Pelican it, uh, looks out on one of the prettiest vistas on the planet for sure. So. Pelican has maybe the is the most delightfully located brewery of all time it's true it's right really right on it's on piers on the beach so i went there of course yes as you do but then i was looking for other breweries and oh. the central coast turns out is not replete with a lot of breweries a lot in the north a lot in the south yeah there's a new one it's down in uh glen eden beach oh nice. which npr listeners will recognize <laughs> from the <laughs> this is one of their repeaters yeah <laughs> so they have to mention it uh and it's called uh Beachcrest. And they opened in 2019. Cool. So they have been yeah. open less than a year. Uh-huh. Uh, and they kind of focus on hazies. Mm-hmm. So you don't actually see a lot of times in in rural parts of the state, people tend to go for more old old school stuff because the yes. you know the, it's a little bit behind the times. This yeah. one is not that way. Yeah, they, yeah. they have a lot of hazies uh, and kind of modern takes on beer. Um, they even had a milkshake IPA, a blueberry milkshake IPA, which I did not like, <laughs> but that's probably more me than them. Um, it's probably uh, their bestseller, man. But yeah, it probably is their bestseller, but they actually really liked their beer. And mm-hmm. I got to meet the brewer who's the owner. Nice. Uh, he was, wor- he was working. It was the day after Christmas. He was yeah. in there brewing because yeah. that's what that's, it's brewing. It's glamorous. Yep. Um, and I especially liked, it was one of the best examples I'd had their Elijah Craig aged Imperial stout. Oh. Uh which was creamy and vanilla-y, but um, finished dryly. And mm-hmm. I got ordered 10 ounces of it. And I, I was, you know, with those kinds of beers, it's always, you're always wondering when this warms up and I get to the bottom, how how much like pudding is it going to be? Yeah. Uh, not at all. I was ready to go for another one. It was really good. Uh, so nice. They were doing great work. Excellent. Not have uh, not heard of them. Yeah. They had a Mertzen, which Sally had, which was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can, you know, it's not, they, the brewer has some skill, so. Check them out in Glen Eden Beach when you're down there in the central Oregon coast. What strikes you about the inner urban, man? 
Uh, the Fremont Inner Urban in your hand. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm, I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> we're we're behind the times for our breakneck sp- speed. Um, it smells old school. It smells like sea hops. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There could be some citra in here or something, but it's a very citrusy profile. There is. A, yeah. I was going to say there's plenty of citra. Uh, citrus. Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, one of our, we didn't get to oh, our you predictions. Want to know what they are? We didn't get to our predictions for the new year, but one of my <laughs> predictions for the new year is that these kind of beers are going to come back. They're really tasty. Yeah. A little bit of bitterness, the citrus, there's like really familiarity to them. I mean, in a, in a certain say, yeah. in a way you could argue that these are like pilsners, you know, they're, they didn't actually need to be improved upon. Yeah. There was evolution that could I wonder happen, if you're but, right. But they're really good beers. This one, by the way, has Chinook, Centennial, and Amarillo. Yeah. That's not surprising to me at all. It's yep. really old school. Yeah. But they're great hops. They are. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I, I think you might be right about that. I mean, when I taste these beers again, I'm reminded, it, sometimes you taste an old beer like uh, old beer style, like an Ambrail, uh-huh. and you think, oh, and you have a nostalgic sense, and you kind of can appreciate it and get yourself in the position of appreciating it. Mm-hmm. But then I taste a beer like this, and I think, no, that's just flat out good. So I have uh, one other thing that I think supports your prediction, which is I think these beers in particular, like this one is a perfect example, are ones that um, that flavor profile works well in a sessionable version. Yeah. uh, I mean. And I don't think that hazies work well very this, I have not found this very... high lie is way too sessionable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, you can reduce the alcohol content. You can reduce the malt bill a little bit, uh, and still have that same sort of hot profile. And it really balances out nicely. I think. Yeah. They're really palatable and they continue to be palatable all the way yeah. down to the bottom of the class. In a way that the really old school bitter charges don't. And I think the really modern hazies don't either. I feel that way too. Yeah. Yeah. But I think a little, uh, you know, that kind of bitterness, pininess is really helpful in a, in a sessional IPA. Okay. Right. So shall we go to the mailbag? Let's do it. All right. So I'll start, I suppose. Okay. Uh, yeah, because, okay. Uh, Jason Hubble, uh, Washington, D.C. again. When you discuss Saisons on the podcast, you generally are talking about Saison DuPont or similar beers. To my taste, more spicy than anything else. I have a preference for much more sour beers that are also labeled as Saisons. Some better examples come from Hill Farmstead, Tired Hands, or from Oregon's Lodgeton Brewers. Uh... Are they really the same underlying style of beer, just taken to different levels of tartness? Or are these really different beers that just get the same label for some reason? This is an excellent question. It is an excellent question. For me, anyway. For you. Yeah, not for I, me. I have no idea. <laughs> answer, answer from Patrick? No idea. Uh, I love the question. Saison uh, is an ancient style, and uh, it was almost entirely extinct uh, by the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and at that point, so by the 1990s, we're very late in beer technology. Right. Uh, so there were no more wild saisons. Right. But this is a style that goes back, uh, decades at least. Um, well, we can go at least back into the mid uh, 19th century when they were written about by Georges Lacombe, mm-hmm. um, in 1850, he wrote about Liège saisons and other beers that were similar to them. And all of those beers were tart. They all had some sourness and that's because they had been, uh, intentionally or unintentionally inoculated by wild yeast. Right. So the modern brewers who are making, uh, what they, the, the, the term of art currently is mixed fermentation saisons. Mm -hmm. So those typically are, uh, fermented 
uh, with a Saccharomyces, a normal yeast strain right. in primary, and then soured with or barrel-aged with uh, wild yeast and bacteria. Right. So they get a complexity through the different fermentations and, and lagering that goes on. Right. And they're really casting back to those 19th century saisons, farmhouse beers. Um, and I mentioned last week that I thought that the evolution from the kind of classic saison, which is made with a normal lab cultured Saccharomyces to these mixed fermentation beers uh, is the, I think that these beers when they're well-made are some of the most uh, accomplished beers that we make in America. And yeah. I stand by that. One mm -hmm. week later, I stand, I stand by that. <laughs> Still holds. I, I, to so, this day. <laughs> to this day, I tell you. So, John, I totally agree. And I think the reason they're calling them saisons is they're talking about a different era in saisons. Right. So they're talking, instead of about the uh, the 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 mid uh, 20th century, they're talking about the mid 18th century. Yeah. So. Um, and and as of yet, there isn't uh, an acceptable market term for the yeah, difference. Yeah. Saison is a category. So you can have dark saisons, light saisons. Right. Small saisons, big saisons, saisons made with uh, all barley, saisons made with other stuff, hoppy saisons. So it's always just been a category. Um, so that's where we are. Yeah. All interesting. right. Interesting question. Interesting answer. So I should read the last one. I don't know if you want me to do two or you want to do this one and I'll do the last <laughs> all one. All right. I'll, I'll begin. I'll do the next so one. The, one. The one in, so in quotes, just so you know, understand the script, is the setup. You don't read those directly. Just Oh, I don't. No. Okay. <laughs> well, just you <laughs> Thank can. You. Thank you. Here, I'll, I'll set it up and then you read the quote, okay? Okay. So Bert Coombs from Oregon City uh, wrote me an email and he had this experience where he bought a uh, 12-pack of Sierra Nevada beer, Torpedo, mm. and he took it, he looked at the label briefly and saw that it said uh, uh, October, November uh, 1st or something like that. And he took it home and he realized... The date was actually from 2018, not ah. 2019. So he thought it was a month old. It turns out it was 13 months old. Ah. And he was irritated about that. So he went back to Fred Myers. He's, uh, Fred, Oregon City isn't here in, in, in Oregon. And he went back to the local chain, Fred Meyer, and demanded his money back. And they said, sorry, we don't do that for liquor. Owned by the Kroger Corporation. Yeah, okay. Oh, Kroger Corporation. In case you're motivated by these things. So that is the setup. Go. Yeah, so they refused to do anything about it. My discontent simmered, he writes, into the weekend when I finally decided to email Sierra Nevada about my situation. My only goal was to let them know how poorly their account was being managed. The following Monday, Tori from Sierra Nevada emailed me to express the company's sympathy about my experience and that they had contacted the account manager about the failure to take beer off the shelf once it is older than 150 days. On top of that, Tori asked for my address so they could send me a check for my misspent money Later that same week, I got a check from them for the cost of the 12-pack. Consider me thoroughly impressed. All my friends were amazed as well. I like Sierra Nevada a lot, but now I'm a lifetime fan. Oh, you love to hear about this stuff. You do. I mean, that's that's how you do it right, folks, right, right. there. So maybe there's no mystery to why Sierra Nevada is hanging on when a lot of their <laughs> contemporaries are struggling. Yeah. Right? It comes down to good old-fashioned customer service and caring about your drinkers, right? Right. So they he, he the brewery bought him a 12-pack, and he'll buy hundreds of 12 packs going forward and he'll share this story on a podcast that <laughs> that's right that, was a, <laughs> that broadcast to hundreds <laughs> that's right and kroger may think about their own policy if they hear this yeah that's pretty bad you you gotta take you gotta take responsibility for that come on it's totally true all right all right <laughs> you're up all right this one i love this one so. yeah i know you love this one <laughs> i'm gonna have a sip of beer all right uh mark griffin from seattle writes longtime mm. listener uh home brewer seattle beer snob Love your books, yada, yada. All right. I, sorry. I can't read this. Ha! 
Ah, old man, you're about ready to lay in. Okay, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I can do it. I just can't do it with my, out my spectacles. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> uh, I was happy for your move to the studio uh, and your improved audio. Well, you can think X-Ray and uh, Chase and earlier uh, Will Romy. So there you go. Yeah. Hi, Will. Hi, Will. Hi, Chase. <laughs> as a podcasting host uh for my own company series Uh-oh. i need to tell you in my best get off my lawn old man voice please 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 get patrick to lean into the mic your voice is f- uh his voice is fine but it sounds like a little boy whispering in fear of the confessional i, I just i love that oh. i so love that i'm 61 years old so i can't uh hear much above 112 kilohertz but his voice trailing off uh is really the issue please consider it your content is great the delivery meh yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) this is not the first time someone's commented on my trailing off i would just want to okay there's two things i want to say a little boy whispering because i need to lash out now that i'm being attacked (laughs) one is that when we were doing this in your kitchen table uh, it was impossible to get you loud enough. I used to have to crank you up to like a thousand and me down. Uh, so something about the studio has changed the dynamic where you were always impossible to hear. And I, and I had to go through great lengths as a producer to serve. So you should thank me because people find you to be the, the better orator. Uh, and then the second is that I'm always the one who has to deal with these crazy scripts. So it's true that I'm trying to read at the same time as avoid, oh, don't, avoid the mic. Oh, don't even blame the script. But, <laughs> That's, no. So it's really the scriptwriter's fault for giving me this crazy <laughs> script I have to concentrate on and lose track on my mic. No, uh, this is not an unknown complaint. This complaint also comes up in the classroom mm. uh, where I'll start going off on a thought. And as I sort of continue on my thought, my voice sort of trails off. Uh, jokes, jokes are another thing that I tend to trail off on because I, apparently I'm not like very confident in the punchline or something. So that's not surprising to me. I have been trying to do better. This is the second comment very recently in a row. So clearly this is something that happens in the studio and the studio is different. We have the microphone setups different and I have to kind of pay attention. So I, I think that's what it is. I, I'm in the studio and I'm casting back to my brief days as a radio disc jockey, uh, in college. And I, I feel like, okay, I'm professional now. You and me both, but. Apparently, I'm, I know. You I'm don't do not. that. So this is a uh, this podcast and the last one. I've tried to pay close attention to staying close to the mic. So please let me know how I'm doing because you know, folks, positive reinforcement is also a good motivator as well, as well as criticism. I like evocative stories uh, about what Patrick's trailing off voice reminds you of. <laughs> Small boy in a confessional. What else you got, folks? Oh God! <laughs> yeah, bring it on! Bring it on, folks! Uh, I think you've been, I think you've been, I can go, I can go back to my Hollywood voice. Yeah. If you do that. In a world in which you cannot hear the announcer, <laughs> he resorts to the gravelly announcer voice. You know, well, my brother actually has a kind of a deep voice and he's actually done voiceover work like professionally. Oh, and I have this weak, squeaky little whiny voice. No, that, your, your voice that, is that deeper than mine. What I need to do is go out drinking the night before, uh, because uh, that always lowers my voice an octave. <laughs> that creates that huskiness. Yeah, it does. That, that thoroughly wears out your voice. <laughs> exactly. Your, your, your uh, vocal cords. All I can, right. I can bring the bass. Well, I think that puts a bow on this one. So I, I, yeah, have, that was a I have heard you folks. I am trying. Uh, it, it would be helpful to know whether I'm succeeding. Only you can tell me. So uh, you can go ahead and keep castigating me and that will provide motivation. Or you can praise me and that will also provide motivation. 
So, a few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you to the Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana podcast. You can find them in Hood River, Oregon, or at freembeer.com. That's P F R I E M B E E R.com. You, you got it. Good job. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was trying to get over the <laughs> trying to get over the, the finish line there. Yep. Dot com before I took a breath. Okay, please subscribe uh, to us on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at beervonablog.com or you can find us on Twitter at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at, at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beernomics. All right, Jeff. Well, we have now rung in the tw- the 2020s, the roaring 20s, I hope. Yeah, I got the highlight. Ooh, I have like two choices. I'm actually going to go for this Prairie Standard Hoppy Farmhouse. All right. Okay, so uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>